Welcome to the Listen to This Bowl live show. My name is Matt Mahal, and that is Remington Huggins. Remington is the coolest attorney you'll ever meet. Um, he's also the sexiest and possibly the shortest. <laughs> All combined. Well, I, well. I am I am, I am uh, the whole entire package, right, Matt? Yeah. I appreciate that intro, man. I really do. I happen to have someone that showed up in studio to enjoy the open bar that we have at NCI on Tuesday nights. This is Josh with iRoofing. Hey, Josh. hey, how's it going? What's going on, man? Don't don't back away. We just got to, we got to squeeze together. It's not gay. It's cool. It's cool. Um, Josh is just helping me uh, put together a scope for my mother's roof because the contractor doing her roof claim, or not a claim, just just a retail job suddenly uh mismeasured the roof by 25 percent somehow mm, got it do they Someone has to update the quote yeah they don't work for js hell do they no so how many squares was that thing 18.27 18.27 squares so i came up with 19 just using um uh google earth pro they have that measurement tool right um but it wasn't nearly as precise as this. And right. this was much, much closer image and stuff. So it was actually pretty cool. So does it do with waste? Yeah. Yep. So it gives, you, with waste yeah, it gives you the waste, all the different linear measurements. And yeah. then it also gives you a nice little custom uh, diagram of what it looks like as well. Yeah. This guy told her 24 squares. Okay. That guy was way off. <laughs> Even with waste, that's a lot. That, yeah. That'd be like 40% waste. That'd be yeah. ridiculous <laughs> on, a, on a simple cable. So anyway. So, Josh, you yeah. want to, while you're here, you want to uh, say a little bit about your company? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an exciting time for iRoof, and I mean, we're getting ready to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. Uh, and uh, not only that, but we have a lot of new features that are coming out uh, that we're going to be unloading this year as well. Uh, and so, you know, you're able to uh, instantly, you know, measure a roof, provide an estimate, even order materials within a matter of minutes. Uh, and one of our uh, great tools that uh, we actually started with is our uh, roof simulator. So you can actually showcase to homeowners exactly what the roof is going to look like at the end of the day. And the whole purpose is, is just really to have more time up front with your homeowners so that you don't necessarily have to play the going back, you know, back and forth. Because chances are, you know, we live in an instant gratification world. Those people got to have it right there, right, the, uh, you know, right there, right on the spot or possibly something else is going to be coming in. So that's one of the things that uh, is great about the iRoofing application. Yeah, and since they just paid me $2,000 to say all that, <laughs> anyway, probably not, but maybe. Yeah. We always work out something. Hey. Sounds awesome. All right, let's do the intro. So we're not attorneys, uh, but there is one guy that is. He's, he's a ball of attorney. My kids call you Big Law. Did you know that? Do they? Yeah, they do. Hey, that makes me feel good, man. I'm yeah. just glad they're on my team, you know? Yeah. I don't know if that's what they meant by that. I think it is. I think it is. I'm going to I'm gonna go with you know that. What? It'll help you sleep at night. I'll let you have it. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. If you guys have ever used iRoofing before and have some experience, I would love some commentary um, about that in our comments. It, this is a program that I've played around with during a convention. Uh, Josh pulled me to the side and forced me to use this program for a while. Um, and it, it's very simple. It's simple. And sometimes I'm the kind of guy that likes all the bells and whistles. So I probably did that thing with my face that makes him think that I'm an asshole. 
but somehow he still came over to the open bar. So maybe it wasn't so bad. Yeah, no, you're a great guy. And, and you know, and here's one of the things too, is, I mean, it's, it's not only from satellite, but we have our uh, aerial imagery called clear roof, which is done by seasonal airplane imagery. You can also do it through uh, blueprints and then you can also do it through drone imagery, which a lot of, uh, a lot of my guys are starting to utilize that. Can the they drones. upload to it? They can. No shit. Right there. Actually, right that's spot. pretty cool. Yeah. So like on my, say, for example, for my drone, what I do is I actually have the uh, iPad extender uh -huh. because I'll never fly my drone without my iPad again because doing it from the phone is very small. So I can actually do everything right there, right on the spot. But then here's a great thing about it, though, is that you can actually get those customers involved in the process as well. So they, they can actually see what's going on. My wife likes it bigger, too. <laughs> hey, Matt, can you put um, his the website iRoofing? Was it iRoofing.org? That's that correct. Put, can you put that in the comments section yeah, so people can check that out? I think they need to check it out and give them that uh, that website directly to them. Yeah, yeah, you guys should check that thing out. Uh, the the imagery is imagery is pretty cool. One of the things that I teach in my courses is to go back in time on the uh, Google Earth Pro app, which is free, but it's a very low quality image. Uh, what Joshua showed me, I wasn't able to do. I actually pulled up the same address, my mother's address, earlier today on Google Earth Pro. Well, that's free. To be able to go back in time to see satellite images from you know last year, year before, and all that, it wasn't a very clear image. What you just showed me was much clearer, and you can still see if there is a pre-existing condition that's there. Correct. And I know that's not usually what you would use that program for, but it was totally possible to do that at the same time as measuring the roof, and that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, and that, that's a big thing. I mean, just uh, having that ability to go back in time sometimes, especially if you're trying to submit a claim and somebody comes up and they're like, "Hey, well, what was it last year?" Uh, now, uh, now it will work in most metropolitan areas. Uh, there are some smaller areas where they might not have that imagery, but uh, you know, you get a certain amount of credits each each month that roll over. Uh, or, I mean, that uh, will uh, automatically upload uh, the new credits as well. So it's just one of the great things about iRoof and that you can actually have within the application. I mean, there's so many reasons to go back in time. You know, uh, maybe you're really into your mom, <laughs> like Marty McFly was. <laughs> Sure, Matt. <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh my god. I don't know. <laughs> well, cool. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, man. I'm gonna yeah, kick you sure. off though and bring uh, our our uh hey, good meeting you, bud. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. All right, that was Josh. Uh that's a pretty cool program. He he's got some things in there I didn't know about. I, I didn't give him that much time while I was at the convention, but I'm gonna have to probably have him on as one of our guests really talk about that program. And maybe I'll have maybe I'll have Eagle View on at the same time and let them fight it out. There you go. I, I would like to hear that. Awesome. That'd be fun. Maybe maybe a roof R. What else is out there? You can have a have a battle royale of of roof measuring tools. Versus so just a, old school, just as old school, somebody who walks the roof with a tape, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Let's let them hash it out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've done that. Uh, hover, you do it. hover for sure. Thanks, John. Uh, Neck Tattoo was, was posting other ones. I don't know what else is out there. Uh, I can tell you right now, none of them had that go back in time feature that I've seen so far. That's something that you would normally get from like a near map or, or Google Earth or something along those lines. That was actually a really, really useful feature. I didn't know it was in there until today. So it uh, might be worth looking into, guys. That's iRoofing.org. All right. So our, our podcast today is about industry podcasts and whether or not we suck. Industry podcasts. Do we suck, Robington? No. 
All right, do others suck right? <laughs> yes, very much. Yeah. So I got a guy who does his own podcast uh, called uh, the Pain of the Claim podcast. And it's it's relatively new and it's an industry deal. And there's a lot of podcasts that are popping up in the industry. Um, I wasn't the first public adjuster podcast. There was Vince Perry. Uh, there might have been other ones. Um, but there's definitely a lot more than there used to be. Same thing in, in the rest of the insurance uh, realm. So the question is, are some of these worth listening to? Matt, we are, the, we are the first public adjuster attorney podcast. I would have to say that. Are we? I would say we are the first. The pub attorneys. Yeah, there you go. There you go. There might Think be something it. to that word, pub attorney. I'm not an attorney. I'm a pub attorney. All right, so I'm going to bring on uh, Jeremy Laville, and he run. He's a public adjuster out of Texas. Uh, has Remedy Claim Services, I think. Um, he also teaches for and, and is a is an instructor and a uh, coach for the for Vince Perry, who I mentioned earlier, his uh, commercial claims advocate stuff. So I'm going to bring him on without further ado. Jeremy, how are you, sir? Hey guys, how's it going? Doing good, bud. How you doing? Man, I'm hanging in there, hanging in there. Um, I was uh, I was just busy coming on shooting a worthless podcast earlier, so uh, I'm you know, glad I could make it onto this one. <laughs> there's just so many, now, so many. <laughs> I, I, I want to say, and and this is a stupid uh, whole title for a podcast. To be honest, uh, th this whole premise for today's show is a little bit silly, and I'm hoping that our audience drives us in many directions. But I do want to say this. There are a very small amount of podcasts in our industry that are worth listening to. I think that the biggest issue is that most of them just become interview shows more than anything else, uh, where somebody brings on someone else that's maybe a possible um, sponsor and just promotes their thing for the next hour. Do you get anything out of that kind of a thing? Well, I mean, it kind of depends on who your audience is, I would say. You know, it depends on who you're trying to help and what you're going after. Um, I think that there's a lot of value. There can be a lot of value in stuff that people are just simply unaware unaware of. Because I think in the public adjuster world, it's it's really common to see a bunch of one-man shows out there. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, or one-man shows that are that are that are out there. I you know what about so women, Jeremy. Oh, women. Yes, women too. Women too. In fact, one of my uh, <laughs> man, more and more. I mean, I, I can't believe how many is in our classes when uh, when we do classes. We've got more and more women. So we've got a lot of one women shows out there as well. So, um, you know, and just how you how you carve up your time, because there's a lot of stuff to do. So you're looking for those things that help streamline the process for you. So um I, I would say that there's some value in it, but I don't know. I don't know how much, I guess. What is that behind you? What is that behind me? <laughs> Look at that. Look at that guy. It's <laughs> my good buddy, Matt Mulholland. That's who's behind oh, nice. That's actually a pretty cool image. Matt was a guest on our, uh, on our podcast. And so. Um, is that your thumbnail from that, from that podcast? Yeah. That's pretty good. All right, cool. Yeah. That's that's our promotion. So, um, 
we're uh we're I'm, I'm editing the video on that currently it should be coming out in the next week or two so yeah i know we recorded it a while back but uh i mean that's the issue with a lot of these things if, if you're going to have high production value and have some editing then it does take time and it takes a lot of effort and you don't get paid for that <laughs> right <laughs> we, we decided the whole reason we started this show was because i didn't have the amount of time necessary to edit the 10 to 15 minute videos that we were publishing before that uh -huh. uh, and i needed something that was live and and not edited and immediate uh so we started to listen to this bull live show and but I, I wanted there to be a topic and then we actually talk about that and we left it open to people to to ask questions so if you're watching this right now understand that the whole purpose of us being on here is to answer your questions. if you don't ask us questions in the comments then we're just going to talk about bullshit that we think is important and not the okay. stuff that you think is important if you want to drive our conversation into somewhere worthwhile for you we'd be happy to go down those paths please post stuff in your comments there's an attorney and two public adjusters kind of questions could you ask ready to answer i like podcast questions i like stump the adjuster questions those are always fun tell you what, what what's really impressive about jeremy uh when, and i met you recently in, in galveston at uh cal spoons event right um jeremy is one of those guys that can boil down something into a very simple term or issue like one very short sentence long thing instantaneously and it would take me like a paragraph's worth of information to explain something and he would say it in half of a sentence and everybody like oh yeah yeah, yeah. i know what you mean <laughs> that's true i guess that's just, yeah. that. i'm jealous as hell that's what i try to do that's what i try to do is try to keep people interested and engaged and and if you can give them a thought that they can walk away with as opposed to a 45 minute explanation they can pull that thing out of an arsenal at any point in time and use it that's 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 the key i like I like to call those my arrows for sure i feel like it's more political it's almost like the the political jar uh herman cain uh had the the nine percent and now i can't even remember i had on the tip of my tongue what, what simple terms in 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 politics uh I don't even know what I'm trying to say. I can't even boil down something that's already boiled down. Remington. I can't do what he's doing. And I'm trying to describe one that's already done. <laughs> Jeremy, do you have some like key go-to sayings or uh, principles that you can boil down? Well, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that I shared with, with uh, Matt pretty quickly, did you get it, Matt? I don't, I don't want you to lose it. Nine, nine, nine. Uh, Gabe helped me out. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> And I don't remember what it stands for, but it was, it was something simple and everybody understood it right away. Um, yeah. Yeah. And now I'm just being laughed at. Thanks. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's one of those things. If you can boil something down into something simple, people will understand it a little bit easier. Doing that with adjusters is, is really powerful. Um, I was impressed with it. Well, I mean, I like one of the things that I, what I told one of the things I told Matt was, you know, insurance is a insurance is a product, not a service. So remember, when you go in and purchase that product, that product should be what that product is. And it shouldn't be fluid based on what's going on. 
you know, so, you know, when you go in and buy a policy, does that policy cover OMP? Does that policy cover wood rot? That policy on the day you buy it should do the same exact thing it does whenever it has a client, whenever there's a claim filed against it. You fulfill those duties after a loss and then you and then you and then you present, for lack of a better term, your preponderance of evidence to the carrier as to why the policy should be enacted. That should be the end. That should be the short and that should be the long and short of it. That should be it. And so it's a product that you use to secure your financial health. And I didn't write the policy. They wrote the policy. And so it doesn't, it, it calls, it calls for direct physical damage. And when we have direct physical damage of any kind of any amount, there's coverage for it when it's a covered peril. So it's, it's, it's that thing should do the same thing yesterday, today, and forever for so long as that policy is in force. Well, so if it's, and John just posted a question. I'll post up in a second. There, there's, if it's a service, if it was a service, uh, then you're saying that it would be adaptable. Uh, and because a service can be changed to accommodate many different things. Uh, and, they refuse, and, and they reserve the right to refuse it. So it is a financial product in, in such a way. Um, but it has not necessarily moving parts, but it's got terms that have to be interpreted based on different situations. So in, in its real sense, I don't know if I fully agree, it's a good way to boil things down. In reality, I think that because every circumstance is gonna be slightly different, it's going to end up having this, it's like putting a, it's like putting a mask on someone's face for, for whoever's face that they molded that to, it'll fit perfectly. Uh, but then you try to put it on somebody else's face. It's still a mask that covers a face, but everybody's other face is going to be slightly different. You stick it on, so it's not going to fit quite right. So every claim is going to have this policy applied to it slightly differently. So I think that there's going to be a slight variation from one to the next, even though the coverage is still staying the same. So from a conceptual standpoint, what you're saying is really nicely boiled down and would help uh, explain something to the layman really easily. Um, but there is definitely some caveats to anything that you boil down. And I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing. I still think that it would be awesome to be able to do what you do. Well, you know, I still, I still appreciate the ambiguity that exists within a policy and being able to boil it down to one sentence or not one sentence. I mean, it's anecdotal at best anyway. You know what I mean? And where it applies and how it applies. It's just to bring a broader understanding of how something works as opposed to, I mean, because you're sold, you're sold that it's a service. You know what I mean? You're also sold a premium. You're sold all of these different things. And, you know, and it's, and it's, you know, not exactly 100% true because people don't really get into understanding what it is that they bought. So, all right. I got a comment up in there uh, from Jerry Petrasek. That's the best I got. If uh, unruly desk adjuster, unruly one, is responding back with denial letters stating wear and tear slash maintenance and not answering any questions regarding the property or inspection, even after a letter of rep has been presented, what would be what would your next step be? They're not answering any questions regarding the property or inspection. I'm confused because saying 
that the property is wear and tear and lack of maintenance is answering questions about the property. So I'm, I'm just a little confused about the well, question. If, if a denial letter is sent with that and follow-up questions are given asking for clarity or something along those lines without a response, um, then what would you want to do if there's no response? And then he follows up with old damage. So, well, go ahead, Remington. <laughs> no, no. Hey, I, I think if he's asking, uh, you know, the public adjusters side of this, and then, um, and then I can add on to that. That that's good with me, Jeremy. So you you take it, bud. Well, I I would. This is what I would do. This is what I would do. And Matt, you feel free to chime in on what you would do. You know what I mean? Um, I would uh, I would probably call the the main one eight hundred number. I would let them know who I was. I would let them know that my letter of rep was on file, and that there seems to be confusion with the de the desk adjuster that, that that's been assigned to the claim because he thinks we filed a wear and tear maintenance claim, which is not a covered peril, as opposed to whatever claim it is that you're filing, and see if we could get a different adjuster assigned to it that understood that we weren't filing a maintenance claim. Now, unless it is wear and tear and maintenance, and that's what you are trying to claim, in which case you deserve the denial. But if it's <laughs> some other, if it's some other cause of loss, if it's some other cause of loss like wind or hail or you know something like that, then then that's what I would do. I would just call and say, "Hey, it appears that he thinks we filed, we didn't file a wind claim, and we did." All right. Well, if, if you file a wind claim and they do an investigation and they determine that the cause of loss is something different, then they might give a denial letter showing that as the cause of loss. I find that often when they do a wear and tear maintenance uh, denial, they're going down those paths, then they are ignoring concurrent causation or they're trying to stipulate that wear and tear or improper maintenance is the proximate cause uh, when in reality, proximate cause might be hail or wind instead. And they're ignoring the concurrent causation items. But the real question here really doesn't have to do with whether or not they are um, applying coverage correctly, which they probably aren't from your premise. The real question here is if they stop answering you and they don't answer you at all. And apparently they're unruly on top of that. So maybe the answers that they did give are really rough. Um, then what kind of recourse do you have? Is there a next step if they aren't answering you? I know if I got Remington involved, they would totally answer Remington. Well, not let's just take the attorney out of the equation. Uh, it matters, of course, what state you're in. I'm just if you're in Florida, let's get the policyholder and the uh, public adjuster to file a CRN. That's going to escalate the claim. Right. It's going to get new eyes on the claim. Typically, it does. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're in Georgia, send a uh, bad faith demand. Um, you know that that should get their attention. Um, and I say this as the policyholder, get your policyholder to, to write off and sign off on that bad faith demand. If you if, if you're in Georgia, I'm using different examples for different states. Do something where it's going to bring attention to the file, bring attention to the claim and potentially escalate it to for a new set of eyes to take a look at it. That that, that would be my suggestion, even if it's filing a complaint with the DOI. Uh, if you file a complaint with a DOI and it's with the desk adjuster, typically uh, the supervisor is going to be taking a look at that file. Yeah, I think anything that you can do to build leverage suddenly is a good idea. I, I would go DOI complaint, even though it's probably not going to go anywhere. It does put it into someone else's 
right. inbox within that company. Mm -hmm. So their manager is going to end up looking at it. Somebody's going to end up looking at it. It's going to be a claim reviewer. And if they see where they went wrong in different places, they probably won't admit they went wrong. But then if you give them some kind of hope or, or some kind of out on something else, they might grasp at it. Um, I tend to like to keep uh, information in my back pocket, something that um, if I give them this information, I'm typically giving them, technically giving them new information. And it, it could be something really mundane, but new information to the point where they could go, oh, my God, if you'd have just told me that to begin with, we'd have just paid for this claim. Now we're going to pay for the whole claim. I wish you had just told us that to begin with. And in reality, that's just them bullshitting their way out of the corner. If you paint them into this corner where they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, then they're at the point where they have to admit they were wrong. They have to admit uh, that you were right. And if they do that sometimes, then it has consequences for future claims for that company. So if you paint them towards the corner without going all the way there and then give them a little bit of new information that they can grasp a hold of, this is the out. Allows them to save face, allows them to say that they didn't deny the claim uh, for the reason that you said. They deny the claim because they didn't know this one little piece of stupid ass information that really doesn't matter at all, but they have something to grasp at. It allows them to provide coverage without saying that you were right and they were wrong. And so there's no consequence for future claims. Uh, painting them towards a corner and giving them a little bit of information is very useful. I can tell you this. There's also ways that you can build leverage and make this more visible. Uh, Sarah Parker taught me this. There's something called a visible complaint. You can have the policyholder go onto the insurance carrier social media page and, and write a complaint directly on their social media front page. It's visible to the public. So it's a visible complaint. And generally speaking, there's different adjusters that get involved in the claim at that point as well. So it would kind of force them to end up uh, commenting. You can also send out a proof of loss. If you send in a proof of loss, you mean all the conditions of the policy, it sets timeframes up. So the proof of loss triggers the loss payment provision. Uh, sometimes it'll say you have 30 or 60 days to make a payment uh, after a proof of loss is submitted and an agreement is made or an appraisal award is submitted or a judgment from a court or whatever. But that that triggered time frame is there. Um, and if you don't trigger something like that, then they might completely ignore you going forward. So you have different options. It's my thoughts. See you later, guys. I think we gave them a, a good bit of avenues to try and you know get another set of eyes because that's that's the key. Get another set of eyes on, on the claim. You bet, Jerry. All right, John had a question up here. Do you think contractors have more leverage by not using Xactimate? Having your own price and standing behind it rather than standing behind a third-party pricing program? What do you think, Remington? This is a good question for you. See, I was thinking this is a public adjuster's question. I, I really do. I, have I, have I you dealt with any claims, Jeremy, where there's a, in, a contractor that uses their own pricing instead so, of exactly? Matt, let me tell you why, though, just real quick, because mm -hmm. attorneys don't write estimates, right? Public adjusters write estimates, typically. Uh, so but do the why companies. do we do it? So I think I think it's it's more of a, you know, the, the two because there's there's three parties to each equation typically in one of these first party claims you got the contractor the public adjuster and then attorney sometimes you know there's just the contractor and the public adjuster who write in the con i mean the uh exactimates or um you know gross bid items for for uh work so i that's why i think it's a public adjuster's question that makes sense 
Jeremy, have you dealt with a contractor that didn't use Xactimate at all? Several times, actually. Yeah, I've got one that I work closely with often that doesn't use Xactimate. In fact, that's how um, that's that's how we started doing business together is because he didn't use Xactimate. He had his own pricing and it was basically kind of cost plus is kind of how he priced things out. So the cost of the job plus, you know, whatever his margin is. And he sent it up and uh, the carrier basically insisted that he go back and put it in Xactimate. I've seen that happen. Um, as far as leverage goes, um, I think that there's a lot of power to an invoice, a cost incurred invoice. I think that there's a lot of power behind that. Um, I mean, I think if your prices are fair market prices and whatever that definition is or is not, you know what I mean? I think in any world, you've got good, better, best, you know, and sure. so um, you just kind of have to look at each individual situation, kind of like Matt was talking about earlier. I think that there's a lot of power behind that. I think that there's a lot of power behind um, them telling you that you could choose whatever contractor you wanted. And this is the contractor we've chosen. Um, I don't believe that there's any place in the policy from a public adjuster standpoint. I don't believe there's any place in the policy that gives the carrier the right to set the price of what it is anyway. So, um, yeah, I think that there is some leverage there. I think it's got to be appropriate, appropriately leveraged and used in that fashion. Because as a contractor, I would just be a dude with an invoice as opposed to trying to argue the finer points of an estimate. Yeah, I, um, I've i dealt with retail contractors that used uh, my company as their insurance department. And I've dealt with a lot of... Uh, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call you guys storm chasers just so that you understand the difference between retail and storm chaser. All right. I know that you don't probably chase storms. Most of my guys were local, but they they only dealt with insurance claims. So you got your your claim handling, your restoration contractors, and you had your uh, retail contractors. The ones that were retail that had their own pricing sheets, the their books that they would lay out and they would go through and they'd say, this is how much this costs. This is how they presented a good, better, best, that kind of a thing. Those estimates were very basic. It was this amount per square, this amount uh, for anything additional. You know, if, if you were going to in, uh, upgrade different things, they had different amounts. Those kind of estimates were a hell of a lot easier to deal with on the public adjuster side because they were legitimate. That This is exactly what this company charges, regardless of whether there's an insurance claim or not. So from a standpoint from a public adjuster, the policy generally says that we will pay the amount that's reasonable and necessary uh, to repair or replace the damaged property. If you are a contractor that is presenting your own estimate and it is the same amount that you charge for anybody doing the same type of work, then how could they argue that it isn't reasonable? And if you're, you're performing all the same actions you would normally, then that's necessary. So that amount of loss becomes very reasonable, even in the carrier's eyes. And especially if the policyholder has already hired you and incurred that cost and signed off on a contract with that amount, that's great. It's the contingency model that we see that has problems. The, the roofers that, and, and well, not just roofers, uh, any, any insurance, insurance restoration contractor that uses a contingency contract, which is the vast majority of the roofers. If you're using that, then you're basically inviting the insurance carrier to set the price. 
and then you supplement to say, well, your price isn't good enough. I, I told you that we'll do it for the price that you agree to, but your price isn't good enough. Let's see if we can come to a better agreement. And then going back and forth on that, if you use a different estimating platform and a contingency model, they will force you to use theirs. And they kind of have point because you still said in your contract that you're going to do it for what they approve. So they have to come to an agreement and approve a certain amount for you to have anything worthwhile. You haven't agreed to a price with a policyholder. You're thinking that your cutoff point, the amount that you want it to be, is the is the only amount that you do it for. But your contract doesn't say that. Those contingency contracts have a lot of problems. I know they're easier to sell. I used to use them. I'm not saying that you're bad for using them. It's it's a lot easier to sell than trying to get a homeowner to sign off on a dead number where you say that the policyholder has to pay the difference between what the insurance company pays and what uh, you are charging. That's very hard, but it's a stronger contract. So we're talking about whether or not you have more leverage or not. And you definitely would have more leverage in those cases. And, and my two cents on this is like, if it gets to my desk, I truly don't care if it's an Xactimate or, you know, a lump sum, so to speak. Um, as long as you can defend as, as the contractor, as long as you can defend that figure, that's what I care about and, and have foundation behind it and say, this is why I arrived at a hundred thousand um, dollars. Not having to, to be lined item now with 37 items. So that that's all I care about. Yeah. Um, my freaking Facebook messenger is blowing up. People keep freaking texting me. Anyway, question on the board. Argument is what percentage of our Xactimate could we define as reasonable? I don't understand why we're asking this question. Um, I, I assume this is because we're talking about whether or not your retail price is reasonable since you're not using Xactimate and your retail price is higher than Xactimate or whatever number that you're using to set your prices is higher than Xactimate. Um, Xactimate is, is, is a malleable program. It's designed for you to manipulate it to suit your needs. So I don't know if there technically is anything above Xactimate because you can just set the Xactimate numbers to be equal to those. But now I'm just uh, dealing with semantics here. The normal pricing structure for that zip code has has the average price set in Xactimate, and that's what people are talking about. What is the reasonable amount above that number? So. What do you think, Jeremy? What's the reasonable amount? Well, I, you know, I think each job has its own personality, really and truly. I think Xactimate is just a, it's a starting point it, as far as, I mean, it's, it's the best crystal ball that we have, right? And so if we're trying to forecast how much something is going to cost, it's the only crystal ball that we've got. And so we start there, and then as things develop throughout the job, then 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 that's going to call for that's the entire point of the supplement process. Now the supplement process has been absolutely abused over the past ten years, but it's but that's what it is. And the reason it's abused is because of the perfunctory estimates that we get handed to us on the on the carrier's first first pass. So I mean, it's that's kind of what I see it as. You know, 
and and exactamate is is you know it's like this is a reasonable idea of what we think it might cost you know it helps in in setting reserves it helps in 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 kind of getting everybody on the same page together as far as the scope goes but price is a completely different argument altogether as far as what percentage over exactamate i you know i i don't think that there's a set percentage on it you know, I think it depends on the, the scope of work that you're doing. I think it I, and then I think it depends on what it takes to produce that job on that day at that particular time. So, I mean, Xactimate's nothing more than a fallible crystal ball at best. He did it again, Remington. He boiled it down to a fallible crystal ball. <laughs> but it, it i mean it, he's right on point i was gonna say the same thing this is a case-by-case claim-by-claim situation um so he said it in his own way of saying hey every claim is unique and, and so forth and it's true so like what percentage over exactimate is reasonable it is a hundred percent a case-by-case situation yeah keep in mind the whole reason that terriers write estimates is uh, because there isn't an estimate on the file already. Uh, and, and now it's it's become so common that there isn't an estimate, even when there is a contractor there, that it's become their standardized practice for them to write an estimate, even if there is a contractor's estimate. But let's let's go back, you know, 10 years, 15 years. Most of the time, if there was a contractor involved, there was an estimate already presented by that contractor and the carrier didn't write an estimate. They didn't need to. And, and we were going to work with their estimate. They, they would ask people to get three estimates from contractors. And the purpose of them doing that was that they would collect estimates so the carrier wouldn't have to write an estimate and they could figure out what a reasonable amount was. If they were all relatively the same. I mean, the policyholder still got to choose whoever they wanted. And then if they disagree with the amount of loss, if they thought that the contractor was gouging them, then that's what the appraisal provision was for us. So the carrier could file or demand appraisal and say, we, we disagree with the amount that your contractor is saying. We think that that's outrageous um, and we're going to send it to appraisal. But it's become some commonplace, mostly because of the contingency contract thing. It's become so commonplace that there isn't a contract from the contractor that the policyholder or the carriers have, have made it a policy to have their own estimate written. And now it's um, almost required for all of their um, uh, IAs or, or whoever is going out on site to investigate to come up with some kind of an estimate. And so Xactimate is there in order to provide a speculative amount of loss until an actual contractor is involved. Now, if you have a contingency contract, that doesn't apply. But if you are using a retail bid and saying, this is, an, this is my bid, this is how much I charge, sign here, then that is an actual bona fide estimate from a contractor. The Xactimate can go out the window. It doesn't matter. It was a fallible uh, crystal ball. I fucking love that, man. That's, that's really good. Um, that's so good. Anyway. I, I don't know if there is a reasonable amount. I tell you, the, the term reasonable um, has a reasonable definition somewhere. That would make it circular. Um, can the insured request the adjuster not write an estimate since they have their contractor of choice with an estimate already written? I mean, they could request anything. 
you know, I kind of doubt it at this point. I think that the adjuster might write this. So they have they have different ways of setting a reserve. There, there are certain way there are certain types of reserves that can be set or, or different ways methods, and each state actually has that uh, statutorily or, or codified in some way on on the methods that a carrier is allowed to set a reserve. And one of those methods is to write your uh, an estimate. And I think that the vast majority of carriers at this point have applied that methodology as the way that they set reserves. So I don't know if at this point you really could make that request and it actually be taken. Well, you can make the request, Matt. They, they don't have to follow it, <laughs> but I mean, cause I, I read these things literally, um, but I mean, Hey, please don't write an estimate. I mean, I think that would just even provoke them more to even write an estimate, to be honest with you, but that's my two cents for it. <laughs> they might, you ever, you ever requested something like that, Jeremy, what do you think? Oh gosh, no. I mean, I, I would, I mean, I just don't think it would do any good. I, I mainly because of how they choose to do business. You know what I'm saying? Because most of the time, the guy that's going to show up at, out at your house, if he's going to write an estimate, typically is an independent adjuster and his job hinges on the fact that he goes and writes an estimate to take that off of his plate. Wouldn't is not is, is outside of what his purview is, what he's been hired to do. So he's going to go write an estimate, whether you ask him not to or not, because that's how he gets paid. So, I mean, what do you he think can't, about he can't go home and he can't he can't go back to his hotel room and email his supervisor and said the, the, the homeowner requested I not write an estimate because I know what I would have told anybody when I was a storm supervisor like you write an estimate anyway because our customer is the carrier and they've requested us to write an estimate on every claim so they're not really there to request anything of you what do you think about uh, carrier guidelines or um uh, best practices uh, documents given out to IAs that stipulate, you know, estimatics, how to how to write an estimate about something. Do you think oh, that, that should go out I, the window if there's a legitimate estimate provided by a contractor? Well, I mean, as far as them giving guidelines, because the vast majority of independent adjusters that don't have any construction experience, the guidelines are a nice handy thing to, to, to fall back on. Um, if there's a contractor that walks up and says, Hey, here's my, here's my estimate. I used to ask every contractor that I knew when I worked on the carrier side, can you send me the ESX? Cause my job just got easier. And so I would just import the ESX and take a look at it. And then I would apply my guidelines to it and then go from there because I, you know, often it doesn't really, I, not, I'm, I was in a position where I didn't even have the policy in most cases. So whether or not something was covered, I was there to write for damage. And this is what, and I, I enjoyed working with contractors, but I was always more policyholder advocate than, than carrier advocate. I used to tell homeowners all the time when I was there, it's like, um, <laughs> it's like, I have no interest in saving this company money, none whatsoever. <laughs> and so if you've got it, show it to me. And uh, I essentially still write the same estimate that I've always written. Um you know, as a public adjuster, as I did as an IA. Now, my knowledge has expanded and obviously my estimates have grown based on on my understanding of what needs to be done from a construction point of view, you know, and learning Xactimate and how I 
communicate what it is that I think should be done in the exactimate language, so to speak, or nomenclature, if you will. Yeah. Um, I mean, what do you do? I mean, what would you do? I mean, what, what do you like to do? Well, to go back to my, to my question a little bit there, the, the guidelines that, that are set by the carrier, um, these, these estimating guidelines, they're like rules of thumb. That, that's why they call them guidelines. They, they don't call them absolute must. They don't say uh, you shall write it this way. It's, these are guidelines. Guidelines are rules of thumb. So they apply in, in the majority of cases, but not all. And that's the idea. I think that they're applied wrong uh, by most adjusters who believe that they can't write something differently because their guidelines say that they can't and they don't understand that that's a rule of thumb. But these guidelines are only there for the cases where they'd have to write an estimate outside of them writing an estimate. And, and you're absolutely right. If, if you send someone an ESX that's already done and they're allowed to accept it, some carriers don't allow their people to do that. But if they are allowed to accept that you've, you've done so much of their work for them, that they're more likely to uh, work with you or at least provide coverage. They're probably going to remove all the same line items that their guidelines don't allow anyway. But if you had a if you had a retail estimate to go along with it, an actual sign off on um, bona fide contractor estimate in hand, then the guidelines wouldn't necessarily apply at all. Those guidelines are for when a carrier writes their initial estimate as the fallible crystal ball. Not that as is correct. Yes, right. so that is the whole point of guidelines. Yep. Fallible crystal balls. This episode is going to be retitled to Fallible Crystal Balls. And we'll have yet another episode about balls, Remington. How's that feel? That feels great. I love okay. it. <laughs> Half of consumers pay more than an algorithm average for their necessary repairs, retail quotes, or the price Xactimate tries to emulate. The word reasonable is unreasonably vague. That's not a question. Very true. I agree 100%. It's subjective. I agree to a reasonable amount anyway. Yep. Well, um, so podcasts suck. Well, I... <laughs> What are you drinking, Matt? <laughs> yeah, I, I got uh, gin in this. Um, yeah, nice. nice. I, I've never really been much of a gin fan, but that's been my go-to for the last couple of weeks. Uh, really? Gin and ginger ale. Gin and ginger ale. It's so good. <clears throat> hey, Jeremy, behind your podcast, the pain of the claim. I love that saying, by the way. Is do you have like a? like a pillar behind like what your like objective is at for the podcast itself. I mean, listen to this bull and hearing Matt, I, I think, you know, everybody gets the gist that it's unfiltered and, you know, to call out the, the BS on the insurance carrier side, as well as um, the policyholder side of things. And then call that out. Cause Matt's done that multiple times on many podcasts is called out, you know, what, uh, public adjusters are doing wrong, attorneys or contractors and so forth. But uh, I think that's like the gist. Do you have a, um, a certain kind of uh, pillar behind the, the podcast itself? Well, it's right there in the name of it. It's just the pain of dealing with claims. You know, it can be it can be anything from your process. It can be anything to uh, 
unruly adjusters. Now I know those don't really exist and they're mythical in nature, but you know, it could be dealing with that. I mean, we do a segment each month, the first Monday of the month, we do something called law and policy where we have an attorney on as well. And we kind of discuss the finer points of, of, of claims handling from a legal standpoint. Um, you know, the audience, the audience is kind of geared for is really more geared for the public adjuster and the and the contractors that are out there. And it's also an effort to basically, you know, kind of spread, you know, to evangelize the idea of a consistent, uniform approach to claims handling. You know what I mean? And so if we can get that word out and we present more of a united front on this side of the table that becomes because there's just we're stronger together right you know what i'm saying and if everybody is kind of saying the same thing that's the point of our podcast is to kind of to kind of rope that stuff in and you know because everybody's got the same sort of complaints i mean if you're if you're active on facebook at all and you're in this industry i mean i cannot tell you the number of times i've seen co coverage come up just this week alone you know and so and and yeah. how and how that and how that is processed and how people see that. Um, you know, we and, do an episode on that, Remington. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That, I agree. that is a full episode for sure. But you're right. I mean, it, it, people have the wrong impressions about things and some of it's so state specific and, and it goes from one place to the next, but there's, and that could cause its own pain in, in the claims process because you think, you know, that how something works and in reality, it might work somewhere completely differently because of case law that isn't very visible. You know, that's a, I've been meaning to ask you this, Remington. How the fuck does an average person know about case law? That they don't. I mean, that's just the simple answer to it. If somebody is a research guru, you know, they can get on Google and, you know, there's some, there's some websites that hit some really high topics in law um, but if you go down this narrow path of trying to figure out exactly case law for an average person, um, that's not in this industry, then they're, they're not going to be able to know. They're, they're, How they're do just you interpret a policy then without knowing case law? Well, I mean, I think we're talking two different things here. Case law, which is what the law is in that state and how when issues are brought to the court and what the court decided is the right direction um, versus policy, which is not case law. It's, you know, a contractual agreement between two parties. Um, it's just called a policy rather than a contract, but it is a contract. So I, I mean, they're just, they are two different things in my eyes. Um, but there are general case law, like to kind of tie it in for you, Matt, there are general case law. Like, for instance, if there's, you know, if, if, if the policy is ambiguous, it goes against the drafter. Right. That's pretty much across the board in, in the country. Um, but there right. are you know, other specifics when it comes to appraisal provision of the policy and, and when is it enforceable and when is it not and things like that. That's obviously absent of the insurance policy itself. And each state is actually different when it comes to that issue. Sometimes a lot of them are the same, but it is different. So, so let me use that example to go forward yeah. with this question. So so we got our appraisal clause in the state of Georgia because of case law. Amount of loss means something different than it does in the state of Texas, for example. Yeah. 
even though the same policy might be sold in both states and the appraisal language is identical in both states, how can someone interpret that in their own policy without knowing the case law? How can someone read it in plain language without knowing the case law? Yeah, I, I think given, I think the example that you gave is a very unfortunate situation. <laughs> I just do just because, for example, the plaintiff's attorney didn't even show up to the hearing, right? So he didn't right. even have a voice. And so bad law happened and um, you would have to just, well, what is amount of loss? It's defined, the Georgia courts define the amount of loss in their own way, uh, which was unfortunate. And that is different from a different state. What'd you say, Texas is, I think that was your example. Basically every other state except North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. So what typically happens is, and I know you've seen it where uh, when there's an appraisal request, the carrier sends back, you should check out Lamb v. Allstate where they actually define amount of loss. And so that's applied to the policy itself. And they, they uh, desk adjusters will send that to uh, homeowners, you know, does uh, that, the state. Let me ask you this then, and, and I'm going down this rabbit hole with you right now. Does, does a decision like that reduce coverage? I think it reduces the, I don't know if it reduces coverage or the policyholders rights. Does that make sense? Because right. coverage is coverage, but the right for a policyholder to go to appraisal and to get a fair award uh, is definitely reduced. So I don't know if you would consider, I guess you couldn't consider that coverage. Uh, but I think coverage is, if there wasn't coverage, you wouldn't be going to appraisal, right? Sure. So I feel like they're two different things in the sense of- Well, I'm going to give you my argument as to why I think it might be coverage. Okay. No, and I, and I, I want to hear this out because I, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I could make the opposite argument. I, th I feel like it's a, I could take both positions, but the, the standard fire policy is, is designated as providing the minimum amount of coverage for fire type policies in the state of Georgia. And the standard fire policy has to be adhered to even for the perils of fire and lightning, even on the suit limitation period, that mattered for the perils of fire and lightning because it was a fire type policy in Georgia. Absolutely. So the appraisal clause, minimal amount of, of language in that or the minimal amount of coverage available to you had to have at least that kind of language there as its minimum. So could it be considered coverage in itself? And if they do, if it does reduce coverage, and this is where I'm going with it, if case law can reduce coverage, does that bypass liberalization clauses and policies? Meaning, should the policyholder be given a monetary incentive now that the coverage has been reduced? Should the policies pay them back a little bit of premium dollars if coverage was reduced? Because it, it, if you do have a reduction in coverage, there has to be a reduction in premium. Yeah. Well, to be fair, sometimes the standard fire policy actually extends coverage. Sure. Right. So let's just say the state farm policy says one year suit limitations period. Standard fire policy says two year suit limitations period. Right. So I, I think it's a kind of a double edged sword. I get what you're saying there. The states in the there's a I can't I, 
I can't say off the top of my head exactly how many states have the standard fire policy or adopted. The standard the policy, there's a there's a ton. Yeah. There's a good handful. Yeah. Um, what I'm trying to it, it is just the this is the like you said, I think what you're trying to say is, is that this is for any type of fire or lightning loss. This is the bottom floor of coverage that all carriers in that particular state must provide to their policyholders. Um, I'll give you a different example and maybe it'll yeah. change things up. Uh, let, let's go with the prompt notice um, decisions that have been made uh, across the country lately. Yeah. Um, if if filing for hail and wind requires prompt notice and the definition of that has been set for at least the perils of peril and wind in, in a state is set to one year. And before that decision was made, you could file a claim two years after the data loss on a hail event and, and be given coverage. Since now prompt notice has been designated as being interpreted as one year by a court system. So there's case law on this. Is that a reduction of coverage caused by case law that then would prompt the entire policy that now has reduced coverage uh, to kick in some kind of a premium discount? I, I think this, I think the courts have defined the terms of the policy. Um, I don't think the policy itself reduced coverage or not. I just think the courts defined it. And so they're not really changing the policy. Yeah. Well, well, just to what the policy is, is interpreted as. So I, to yeah. piggyback off of what you're saying, like state by state in Georgia, you're right. There is federal case law that you have 12 months. That's, that's, that prompt notice window. If you go to state of Florida and it's a named storm, supposedly you have three years per the statute. You know, I know statute's not case law, but um, it, we're, we're running on the same, we get the gist. It's the same idea. Yeah. So, so if you don't know what the statutes or the case law is, how do you interpret a policy? If it's supposed to be in plain language. Hey, if you are, idea. that's why I, I say it every day. Like if you are, if you are a regular homeowner or a commercial building owner and you really do have a loss, you're fine. You need to get, you have got to get a public adjuster on your side. Like if you don't have Jeremy, if you don't have Maholland, you're 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 in trouble. Like, and I tell policyholders, I tell people this all the time, you're such at a disadvantage. Um it, it, truly, like all my all my relatives, I don't care what state they're in, Ohio you know, Kansas, Texas, you name it. I tell them you need to hire a public adjuster ASAP if you're going to have a loss because you, like you said, Matt, you are effed if not, so to speak. So <laughs> Jeremy, do you have any input on, on this when it comes to, you know, a regular, a, a person that's never handled an insurance claim has a fire at their house? Like how, how are they not at a disadvantage when you're going to have this IA that comes out to their property or even just a payroll uh, individual adjuster, field adjuster come out and start adjusting the claim and telling them that, you know, they're going to do the right thing and everything else. I mean, do you, it's, it, it's, if you think about it, it's, it, it's a bad situation for that policyholder. Man, Let's let's for a minute assume that the carrier did everything that they were supposed to do, like and they paid they paid the claim exactly how it should be paid. The navigation, the proper navigation of a claims process is outside of the expertise of your general layperson, for lack of a better for lack of a better term. 
You know what I mean? And what they can do, you know, how they can, I mean, it's just too easy to commit breach. You know, the, the, the document that you signed and the things that you agreed to do, it is just way too easy and they can deny those claims. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and legitimately and legitimately so, but as you all know, is that I have, I have yet to run across in my career where the carrier opened with, with an estimate that was 100% accurate and addressed the damages as they should be addressed. I still haven't run into that estimate. I don't know if you have, Matt, you've been doing this a little bit longer than I have, yeah. but I've never run into that. And it, so it does happen. it's rare. But I mean, and the reality is, is that now you're asking a homeowner to go and even have the expertise to know whether or not the carrier has done anything wrong. So, I mean, in that regard at all, if you if you believe in any possibility that a carrier could be wrong and not provide you with the full amount of coverage that you've paid premium for, then yes, hire a public adjuster. If you think they're fallible, even one little bit, then I would hire a public adjuster without a doubt. Um, and too many claims, something like, what is it, like 88% of claims in Texas, I know, go completely and totally unrepresented. And that's by like a by by like a substantial reputable contractor or by a public adjuster. And we're not even as ubiquitous as, as public adjusters are in in the Florida region. I mean, nobody. I mean, we're all over. I mean, if you Google us, we'll pop up all over the place. But you don't. Most people are completely unaware of this profession and that it exists. And it's a resource, even though in their Bill of Rights, it's written right there. You can hire a public adjuster. Unless you can't. Well, in the Texas Bill of Rights, it says you can hire a public adjuster. It's in the Bill of Rights in Texas. And and they send that to them most of the time when a claim is filed. But people's understanding of it, it's just it's 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 complicated. Jeremy, you have been called the man. Oh, is that right? (laughs) Alexander Kubik, you probably owe him some money. Um, I probably do. I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I I don't know how anybody would navigate the process. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're going to be led around by the nose by the carrier. I mean, there's just, there's just no, and, and who knows who you get on your roof? Who knows who you get to come inspect it? I mean, I mean, the barrier of entry into this profession is so low. I mean, so low. I'm not even sure you have to know how to spell adjuster. Do you know no, what I mean? I can tell you for sure that is not the case. Frank Dalton was a manager at two major carriers and he can't spell shit. So, <laughs> so I, I just, that's, that's, um, that's, that's just something that, that I realized. And I mean, no, you can't, I, I, I would hire a public adjust. I mean, I ask this, it's like, there are lots of people out there that file their own ta- own taxes. But I think the vast majority of people hire a CPA or at least go to H&R Block or something like that. You know, once you get above the 1040 EZ form, you know, I mean, you need help. I mean, when you buy a house, you you, you get a real estate agent. You know what I mean? I, and it's like I, going without representation when it's available to you and generally costs you nothing on a net net level. Why wouldn't you do it? I don't know why do there's so many questions. Why does someone get fucked over by an insurance carrier and then not change insurance carriers? I have no idea. I don't know. I, I have no questions idea. that don't have answers. 
Man, I don't know. I had a, I had a, I just signed a, a new client. This is kind of a funny story, and I'm sure you you guys have experienced this. I signed it up. She had already hired a contractor, and I reached out to the contractor. And said, "Hey, I'm a public adjuster, and uh, I'm going to be taking it from this. I'm going to be handling the claim from this point. I've written an estimate. I want to make that estimate available to you. I want to make sure that you agree with it." And if there's anything that you would like to add or any concerns that you have, I certainly want to be able to discuss that with you and explain where I'm coming from. And she goes, so you're a public adjuster? I said, yes, ma'am, that's correct. And she goes, well, um, then we're going to go ahead and uh, pass on this job because we don't work with public adjusters. Really? Yeah. So that was the policyholder that said that it wasn't the policyholder. It was the policyholder's contract because they called in water it was an interior oh, water loss. Oh, oh, oh okay and they're I, probably program they're program people or whatever and so but it's yeah. interesting it's like i can't believe you'd walk away from that you know I've, I've had a lot of contractors that were retail contractors that didn't want to work with public adjusters there's in the fire world when you're dealing with a lot of fire clauses there's uh -huh. a lot of contractors that do not want to work with public adjusters at all they will do everything they can to kind of skirt around one if possible um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that the public adjuster can get them a lot of ACV money, maybe enough to uh, warrant not getting the work done and just kind of doing something else. Um, uh, well, so the contractor might end up getting written out of the thing. So that happens a lot on the larger type losses, to be fair. Um, I've had agents uh, go against us. Hell, Remington and I have had the president of an insurance carrier specify that if you hired a public adjuster, that they would drop you on a voicemail. Wow. That um, that was sent to the Department of Insurance who closed the complaint. Jeez. Right, right. So, I mean, there's an uphill battle for people. So like you said, you know, uh, you definitely need advocates. And even when you have advocates, sometimes the carriers have a lot of, a lot more power uh, than we do. And especially in certain states where we have a lot less leverage. So. Um, ultimately, we ended up winning that. Uh, Remington was able to settle that one outside of court, uh, but it was definitely not the amount that it should have been. And, and it is what it is. And that's this is the the reason we have a job, so to speak. I, you know, and I don't want to complain about the the environment that's created so that I do have a profession. So I want to be careful about complaint there. But, I, you know, I didn't set the system up. I just leveraged it. That's all I've done. And well, everything uh, we do has consequences, though. Everything we do, even if we win a claim, it has consequences. If if we want to claim big and, and visibly has consequences. I once did a, a thing with Fox 5. Um, about Atlas Shelley Shingles. I brought a story to them in 2015. They've done several stories since then. Um, but it, it may have been the reason that Georgia got so tight. Mm. It might have freaked out people or given the leverage that the carriers needed to say, look at this, we're going to have to pay for so much more than we should have because of the amount of these roofs. And you're saying that we have to replace them all. And it, it allowed a lot of really bad language and policies to be allowed in the state. So that was a big win for Georgia in 2015. For at least six to eight months, people were every single one of those was paid for as a discontinued material. Uh, but then things started going downhill from there. And here we are in a position where we have no leverage in the state. And it might have been because of that good thing 
arguably. So everything has consequences. There's no way to know what the consequences are going to be. Consequences are going to be. Uh, for example, the consequences of drinking this are that I start losing some of the syllables from the word consequences. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so anyway, it's been it's been uh, over time. We're not going to hold you guys up too much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Um, if they you're on YouTube, when do you start? To, um, do you have episodes out already? Yeah, I do have some episodes out already. Um, it's uh, you, if you search Remedy Claims Consulting, and then you'll see the pain of the claim. I also do shots in the arm too, which are quick little, uh, quick little educational stuff. Like I have one on Symbility versus Xactimate that you can get in there and look at. Um, I'm going to be doing one on codes here pretty quick um, and code enforcement and the difference between enforcement and absolution. So, um, which will be which will be really good. So lack of enforcement is not absolution from the code. I like that word. You boiled it down again. Well done. Um, honestly, I, I'm looking forward to seeing more from you just because you are able to do that and, and make things a little bit simpler and easier for people to understand. I have a tendency of talking a little bit over people's heads, not on purpose. I'm trying I, to explain it. Can I do uh, one, one cheap shameless plug before we take off? Nope. Nope. <laughs> hey, uh, if you're in the Dallas area um, or if you care to travel to the Dallas area on the 1st of July, we are doing um, what's called uh, Advocates United. It's a uh, it's a networking meetup event. Vince Perry is going to be there. Cal Spoon will be there. Um, I think Alex Wang, um, which is Vince Perry's personal business coach, is going to be there. Um, people like Steve Patrick is going are going to be there. So a lot of a lot of in industry big shots are going to be there. So um, if you need to, just go to Commercial Claims Advocate and RSVP and let us know that you're coming. Um, it's going to be a really really good event, and uh, we're going to buy some drinks and we're going to buy your food too. So it's a completely and totally free event. What date is that on? July the first. Hmm. All right, I can't be there. It's a, it'll be a Dave and Buster's in Dallas off the of Central Expressway. But all oh, the man, you get to play video games too. You should have led yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's gonna it's gonna be a fun event. Come out and talk to us. I'm gonna be emceeing the event personally. And mm -hmm. uh, so it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. So if you're in the area, please come out and check it out. Yeah, go awesome. check that out. Uh, these are good people. All right, Jeremy, I appreciate it. Thank See you, Jeremy. He's probably gonna be out there like spinning some records and shit, right? Yeah, I mean that's what MCs should do every time. The next time I MC an event, I'm going to demand that I have a turn. There you go. I think that. that would make the event better. You know, with with how horrible that I am, people could laugh at me, and at least they're laughing, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That was fun, man. That was we we got um, kind of hit on a lot of different topics there. It was. Uh, I, it was I mean, and ultimately, the whole episode's boiled down to one thing. You know, podcasts suck. <laughs> well, I, don't I don't even know why that that was even topic of discussion today I, know, it was, it was a, I had no title i had no topic i throw that on there i am next time you do that on. just ask me before you do that and i can yeah maybe that's a good idea <laughs> just be like hey hey remington uh you got an idea yeah. be like yeah, yeah. Like, i do and that, so don't title your podcast while drinking how about that That'd there, be you good. Go. there you go i love All it right. well, yeah, we'll see, you, uh, see everybody next tuesday 
Yep. And uh, don't forget, you can go on to listen to this bull.com and get some swag from there, guys. We could use the financial benefit of you buying stuff. That would be really awesome. We don't make money on this thing. Like, no, at no. All. we no. just take our time out of our day to do this. It'd go into uh, equipment and everything else. So. No, there's there's thousands in equipment. It's ridiculous. It is. It's insane. Please, so. please, please help us. Awesome. You and guys have a great night. About it. We need more subscribers. All right. Thank you. See, See you. Later.